Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Omega Tau. In this episode, we're going to talk about civil engineering and what can go wrong, uh, a branch of civil engineering called forensic engineering that tries to figure out the causes of uh, disasters and, and things going wrong in the construction of buildings, bridges and other things like that. Our guest is Sean Brady. You might have heard about him. He is a forensic engineer and he has a podcast, the uh, Brady Haywood podcast, where he talks about um, these kinds of things. So if you want more about this topic after this episode, that's an obvious and great place to learn more. You might also have heard about him because as part of his podcast, he also covers non-civil engineering uh, things gone wrong and he has a series of episodes about Apollo 13 it's it's almost audiobook length and this episode has uh, or this set of episodes has made quite a bit of a splash in the podcast community especially also the German one um, it comes recommended by David Woods uh, who you probably all remember from our Apollo episodes And uh, so um, that should be enough of a reason to, to check out at least this series of episodes, even if you're not too much into more details on civil engineering. So in case you haven't figured it out, this is an explicit recommendation to listen to the Brady Haywood podcast as well. In addition, of course, not instead of Omega Tau. All right, I don't have anything else to announce, um, so we can get started with uh, Sean introducing himself. Yes, yeah, so my name is uh, Dr. Sean Brady. I'm a structural engineer, but really for the last nine years, I've just purely practiced in the area of forensic structural engineering. So I essentially investigate when structures fall down and, and why, and not even when they fall down, but when they get sort of major defects that cost a lot of money to fix, I, I go in and try and work out what actually caused the failure or caused the defect. Mm -hmm. And today you're going to talk, tell us a little bit uh, about how you do that. Yeah. So I'm talking to you in Brisbane, well, I'm not in Brisbane, but you are, right? Yes. So, but you you don't sound very Australian. No, no, no. I came out here uh, 15 years ago um, and the plan was to stay for two years and then go back to Ireland and that hasn't exactly worked out yeah. and since then I've been I've been here uh, came over with my wife and uh, yeah we're both quite happily living over here now and it just works and the problem is once you get used to the Brisbane weather it's very yeah. very hard to go back to Europe yes <laughs> that's when it gets a little tough Yeah, I, I was putting you in terms of your kind of accent. I was putting you to to Ireland. So I was just trying to confirm whether that that was true. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grew up in the middle of Ireland and then did about nine years in Dublin before I moved to Brisbane. So yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and you also have your own podcast about this stuff. We can talk about that uh, towards the end, kind of in, in, in when we summarize. And that's yep. how I got uh, got to know you because I was listening to this to this podcast. All right, so um, so we're talking mostly about civil engineering today, right? Although I guess forensic engineering, finding out what caused a failure, can also be potentially used in other disciplines. Yeah, I mean, you you find it pretty much in in most disciplines, and and I suppose I would I would say that I'm I'm a forensic structural engineer specifically, so I, I tend to to deal with purely structural things, even though it gets on the border of geotech. 
um, and soil stuff um, quite a lot. But yeah, you see it in other industries and in other industries, sometimes they call it forensics um, and some of them are a lot more formal than others. So in, in some industries, they'll refer to it as root cause analysis. And the sort of stuff we'll talk about today is yep. is a very, sim- you know, very similar, I would say, probably more overarching sort of concepts of forensics and, and, and people sometimes break them down into these sort of root cause analysis approaches, which are better for some things than others. Um, but yeah, you see it in most areas of, of engineering. Some areas are, are better than, than others. And you see it across all professions. Um, they don't call it forensics per se, but some professions are a lot better than others at trying to figure out what caused their failures and what, what actually went wrong in their industries. Right. Okay. So then I guess we should start by talking a little bit about structural engineering as a discipline. First, we haven't had actually many episodes on on that. And I guess we have to understand Mm -hmm. the process of building to some degree before we can understand the process of understanding the failure of something that had been built before. Yeah, yeah. So how would you define structural engineering? Yeah, I mean, you get all these these definitions of structural engineering um, and, and ultimately they sort of say, you know, make something strong enough so that it won't fall down when it's subjected to, to some forces, whether that's the wind blowing or people using the structure or vehicles crossing a bridge or earthquake loads and all that sort of stuff. And then they tend to roll in in these definitions that, that when you're doing this, don't make it um, too expensive. And really what that means is don't make it too inefficient and don't make it too too ugly either so you you have to try and work in and this is where sometimes people get a little confused between architecture and and structural engineering you know the architect is fundamentally interested in the function of the building and on what it's going to do for the people and how they're going to use it and and really it's the engineer's job to to make it stand up from that point forward it's interesting because sometimes architects are seen as only caring about looks, but you would say that almost like with usability in software, it's not just about design, it's also about being fit for purpose. Yeah, and, th- and you get into some, you know, engineers and architects get into to quite a lot of conflicts, because ultimately your engineers want to make beams a little bit bigger and a little bit thicker and columns a little bit wider, because that's, you know, going to make their job easier. And of course, engin- architects tend to chase the elegance, they tend to, to chase the slim structures. So you get this fascinating conflict between architects and, and engineers, which can can lead to some interesting debates. One area where it is a little bit different is in bridges, because in bridges, the the form, the structural form has such a major impact that it almost drives uh, the, the architecture in that case, whereas in buildings, it's certainly the other way around, or well, it's typically the other way around. Sometimes you get some really structurally interesting buildings where the, where the structure is is shown off and almost drives the architecture, but usually it's the other way around. Another way of maybe saying the same thing is that in bridges, the structure is exposed, whereas in buildings, it's often hidden behind the facade that might be fancy glass and stuff, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. 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 And then every time, now and again, they take it and they put it on the outside and because that looks cool architecturally, but then you're really just showing off the engineering at that point. Which is, I guess, as an engineer, you probably appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's you know, your classic time and time and place um, to try and make it interesting. Um, and if it's an interesting engineering, then yeah, it looks good. And if it's it's not, as most of it you know, tends to be a little bit more pedestrian, then yeah, you certainly let the architecture shine in those situations. Yeah. So one thing I always find interesting uh, in these 
in structural engineering or civil engineering is that, um, I mean, design is only half the story, right? At some point, is the, the, the next thing is the construction itself. Um, and that, that deals with, if you will, real materials, real concrete, real steel. Um, and I, I imagine it to be harder to um, actually construct a building that is faithful to the you know, to the calculations than it might be in other disciplines, just because of the size and maybe the variability in material quality. Is that, yep. is that true? Yeah, that's true. I mean, one of the, the, the things that I think is a, is a really important difference between structural engineering and other types of engineering is we, we don't get a chance to prototype. We really build the thing once. And, you know, structures tend to be quite similar. You know, we, we end up with lots of different sort of kinds of structures, but within those those little areas, they, they, they are, they're similar. Mm -hmm. But they're always subtly different. So that, that subtlety changes things on every single one of them. So we only get one chance to put the thing up. You don't get a chance to prototype, work out all the bugs, check your theory, so to speak. You only really know in structures that that your theory is working because it hasn't fallen down, but you don't know how conservative you've been in your assumptions. You you know you've just been conservative enough. Um, and then you're you're not constructing it in a nice controlled um, yeah. factory environment. You're you're you're, you're outside, um, you're in the weather, you're the way they would say you're using in, in many cases um, workers with uncertain skill levels. And one of the quirky and funny examples you sort of hear is that design is is like like planning the war from 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 the building well back from the front but um ultimately construction is hand-to-hand -hand combat in the trenches that's how it plays out so you you can lose a lot of the subtlety and that's one of the challenges with with design you you must try and get enough robustness and enough conservatism into it as was to to cope with the changes that tend to to occur once you actually get on site. Mm. So, what does the um, design and engineering profession do to mitigate that problem of not being able to prototype and the other problems you just managed? I, I know that one thing is that there, for example, in contrast to software, <laughs> you are very much governed by standards, right? Incredibly so, yeah. And incredibly prescriptive standards. Yeah, and I, I presume that those standards also include uh, safety margins that you just put in because you just don't know how it's going to be in the real world. Yeah, that's it. I mean, the general sort of philosophy, and it sort of depends on how sort of deep you want to get into this stuff. But the, the way you you really work it is you're 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 adding factors of safety. You're taking the loads that you expect to be on the on the the structure, and you're factoring them up by a number, which could be you, you could be doubling some of them, um, you could be multiplying some of them by fifty percent. Then you take the capacity or the strength or the resistance, we have all those terms for it, but ultimately it's the strength of the different materials. So this could be you know, how strong is a bolt if you try and pull it and change it. What point will a bolt and a nut assembly fail? And what you do is you factor that down. So you and different codes do it in different different ways. Euro codes use partial factors, the Australian codes use capacity reduction factors. But you basically say, I don't really have that much strength. I've only maybe got 90% of that strength or 50% of that strength. So what you're doing there is you're factoring the loads up, you're assuming they're bigger than they really are, you're factoring the strengths down, so you're assuming they're smaller than they are. And Ultimately, for each of the elements in the building, what you're checking and making sure is that those factored loads are lower 
than those factored capacities. That's pretty much what you're after. Yeah. I remember uh, when I was studying, I had this one uh, subject. It was called uh, Bow Elemente. So it was basically about um, basically building, basically civil engineering. We were like more more or less constructing ships and stuff because the Mm -hmm. the professor was from the north of Germany. And so I remember one afternoon, like we had this on Wednesday evening, like four hours on block. And we were like doing this huge calculation, like how thick should a bunch of screws be or bolts <laughs> that would be kind of this really critical thing in the ship yep. that basically would hold the ship together. And we, we literally, we calculated for hours. And then in the end, basically, there was some kind of number that came out. And then the guy said, well, but you see, this is really, really a crucial screw. And, you know, we're building ships. We're not building aircraft. Weight really doesn't matter. So let's just use the biggest one we have and i thought well yeah. great after hours of stupid calculations we just guessed the biggest one <laughs> I thought this that, was uh, that can be structural engineering exactly the, yes. there's a wonderful uh quote um and and it basically i've got it here it says you know the structural engineering is the art and science of molding materials we do not fully understand into shapes we cannot precisely analyzed to resist forces we cannot accurately predict all in such a way that the society at large is given no reason to suspect the extent of our ignorance yes and it's just that just sums up structural engineering yes i'm just thinking about um, phrasing that in software right it's the art and science of molding technologies we don't fully understand into programs whose requirements we don't know and so on so it's it's <laughs> exactly <the laughs> it might same. be more similar should... to other domains than you that it might seem <laughs> Yeah, and and I mean, it, 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 what, what, given that we're going to talk about engineering failures yep. and structural engineering failures, you know, it is incredibly rare. I mean, these these systems that we have and these codes in the very prescriptive way and all our, our safety factors, they do tend to work really, really well. Yeah. And we'll be talking about that later on. So it is the business of guessing how a structure that doesn't even exist yet will uh, will in the future for the next 50 or 100 years but they are very yeah, educated and codified guesses um, but it, yeah, at the end of the day sometimes I talk to structural engineers and we look at this and they're a bit bamboozled as you say that there's this view that you can just sort of double things at the end if, if it's a critical component and, and they, they like to think it's probably a little more scientific than that but um, it's certainly much more on the applied science end of things yeah well, it is also an interesting contrast to aviation where, for example, weight is a much, much more important factor than in buildings or ships, right? Um, it mm-hmm. has a much more direct economic impact. Um, so there it's much more important. Well, it's, it's, it, it has a bigger benefit if you calculate more precisely. Exactly. And the, and the other thing you roll into that is you know, you're going to build this building once. Right. You know, if a client said, oh, I want 300 of these buildings from you, then you might take a very different approach. Then you might say, well, let's do some prototyping and breaking some things because there's going to be real value in understanding those things when we go forward. Yeah, right. So then before we move on to to, to failures, um, in addition to following the standard uh, and experience um, and calculations, what other, um, if you will, tools does the structural engineer use? How much of, uh, I don't know, computer-based simulation is going on? And like, for example, CAT programs, which don't just basically manage the, the shape of things, but also maybe calculate strength requirements. Does, is that going on? 
That's going on, yeah. I mean, you get a huge level of computerization, which causes you know a lot of well results in a lot of good things and results in some bad things as well. But I mean, fundamentally, what's what's happening if we get into the sort of the nuts and bolts of just the the technical engineering, you're you're making assumptions about all the loads that are going to be on your structure that doesn't exist yet, and most of that comes from the code. So that's Again, very prescriptive. You'll assume all these loads that it tells you to assume. Code you mean um, is the is the building code, the standards you have to follow. The standard, whether yeah. it's a Euro code or an Australian right. code yeah, or okay. an American code, and they are they, they are incredibly prescriptive in terms of you know they will tell you that this is the floor load you have in this type of building, and you you just go and assume that and you you move on. Yeah. So you you start off with all these these loads that you're applying to the sort of to the, 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 the macro structure. So you're applying the floor loads to the floor, the wind loads, all that sort of stuff. The same thing goes for the, the strength side on, in, in the individual components. So you mm-hmm. the code tends to be quite prescriptive as well on how strong concrete is and how strong a certain beam with a certain amount of steel is in it um, for reinforced concrete. So you can calculate all that out pretty pretty closely with the code so now what you've got is you've got the sort of overall loads in the building you've got the which comes from the, the the standards you've got the capacity of all these little bits that are in the building the real trick then in the middle is what the engineers would tend to call the the analysis phase mm-hmm. which is how do you get from these sort of global loads on your building down to the level of the loads in each column each beam each slab each connection and that's where a lot of the software comes in so they use the software which will essentially work out the load paths from all the loads flowing through the building it'll work out essentially how stressed everything is and then a lot of those programs do actually match up with design programs which will actually go and calculate the amount of steel you need or the amount of bolts you need and all that sort of stuff so to varying degrees depending on the I suppose the complexity of the structures you're working with and the design firm that you work for works with um you'll see different levels of sophistication in that but it's it's it, yeah the use of of computers is just widespread for that sort of analysis okay all right so let's move uh, slowly towards uh, failures um i would suspect that one cause of failures if we if we just enumerate what can go wrong right yeah. then i guess making a mistake in these calculations making a design error is is like one cause potentially yeah so if we if we leave bridges out of it for the moment and yeah. um, it, it's it's interesting when we go and we look at the causes of design errors particularly but certainly um, messing up the calculations is is really one of the biggest and and it's in it's in that middle place where they mess it up so it's the the loads that are prescribed in the standards and um, that you have to assume they're pretty good the capacities that, that you are prescribed in the standards in terms of strength are really good it's actually that middle piece mm-hmm. of doing the analysis and converting those global loads into local loads in all the beams and, and columns that's where things really go wrong and you know you could be talking about 40% of, of failures are caused by 40, well, let me say it this way, 40% of failures, it depends on which study you look at, but sort of 40% of failures can be caused by design errors, and those design errors can just be messing up the calculations in that analysis phase. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a significant number. It's a significant number, yeah. And and what it's saying is that it, it's it's human error. You know, we're, we're either, you know, it, it's it's flowing right through, it's People are using the tools and getting getting things wrong, um, and that's where a lot of these design errors are are, are coming from. 
Yeah, I'll have some comments about human caused errors. I'll, I'll get back to that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, but just to to look at other other causes, material deficiencies. I could imagine there is such a thing as low grade concrete or or low grade steel that doesn't actually carry the the load that the code suggests it would carry, uh, despite the margins. Yeah, that can be an issue. And it's it's. It, I mean, if you sort of step back, it it tends to. And again, it differs from stu- study to study. But what you tend to see is it's almost fifty percent, fifty percent of failures, fifty uh, percent by design, fifty percent by construction. Mm-hmm. The material ones tend to be very low. They can be down in the percents. Um, so this concept of dodgy material causing a problem. Um, isn't as common as we probably would think. Now, the interesting thing is if you sit in a room for a full of structural engineers and, and you tell them what worries them, uh, or ask them what worries them, they'll tell you that dodgy materials, um, steel that hasn't got the right strand, bolts that haven't got the right strand, concrete that hasn't got the right, they're the things that, that worry them. Um, but the, the stats and failures show that that's not really the case. But but you, you get into this chicken and egg saying, you know, are, are those so low because we worry so much and, and we police them so tightly and we can take steel samples and test them. Um, so is it a chicken and egg? Is it because we're so worried about it that they're low? Um, is it because they're low because we can actually test for them? They're much easier to test those things than test whether an analysis model is right. So, yeah, it's about 50-50 design construction with a little bit of materials thrown mm-hmm. in. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the material thing is usually um, is usually mass-produced, right? The bolts or screws or even the concrete, that's something you... As you say, the process is much more easy to 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 manage and observe and validate. So I guess yeah, that's probably why it's exactly. a low rate. Yeah. Exactly, and certain industries seem to be worse, and certain industries seems to be better from design and construction. So it does jump around a little bit. But if you sort of put all the stuff together, you find that the designers and constructors tend to be equal equal offenders in this. Mm-hmm. So. 50-50 plus a little bit is almost 100%. Um, where would operations and maintenance errors go? Because I'm sure that that's an issue. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in structures, they tend to to drop down. I mean, we are seeing those certainly maintenance issues becoming a bigger problem in bigger structures and certainly in, in bridges, you know, deterioration mm-hmm. because these things are, are outside and they're fully exposed and they tend to get abused a lot. That tends to be a bigger problem okay. there. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a major problem in 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 buildings. Usually, people have to, to to mess up design construction or try and change the building where we see some of these issues. Right. Okay. So, but then I probably, well, when I was thinking about this, I was actually having a bridge in front of my virtual eye, and you seem to make a big difference between bridges and the rest. Um, we already kind of alluded to this before because the structure is exposed and not hidden, and so. You're, you're implying that there is more maintenance that can go wrong, that can go wrong in bridges. Well, it, bridges are really, I mean, bridges are really different. Um, and when you go and look at the statistics for bridges, you find all these these different causes. And, you know, one of the best, and, and they do differ a little bit over the world. Um, uh, but if we, but that seems to be more related to countries that have big stocks of existing bridges versus countries that are building bridges really, really quickly in short spaces of time um, in, in more developing places. But if you go to, to the US and you look at some of their studies, the, the really interesting thing you find is that the number one thing that knocks bridges down is hydraulic actions. So these are floods and they're also scours. So scour is when you, I'm not sure how many people are with scour, but if you take something and you you 
you drop a structure like the pier of a bridge down in the middle of moving water, whether that's in a, in a tidal estuary or in, um, a in, a, in a moving river, then what happens is you get all these little eddies and swirls in the water around the base of the structure. And that actually has can, depending on the circumstances, have the effect of digging out the structure. It wow. digs out the foundation, the pier, and, and it falls down. So that hydraulic action of about you know 53 percent of failures happens because of hydraulics which is flood and scour so that's a it's a major major cause of failure and um, you know and, and certainly other studies would say that about half the bridges that fall down or fall down because of scour which is interesting but you sort of say well why you know how can that be so bad and and then this sort of starts driving us back to well it's under the water, so it's hard to see. Um, it's expensive uh, to to inspect, and um, those seem to be the drivers that prevent us catching these scour failures, particularly. Mm-hmm. And then when you move away from hydraulics, you, you you drop a long way. So you drop from that fifty three percent down to about eleven percent, and you find a bunch of causes there. Uh, collisions comes in at around twelve percent. Mm-hmm. Um, overloaded bridge. So this is book collisions from road and train, but also collisions from barges hitting piers beneath as well. Um, so that's coming in at around you know twelve percent. Um, then overloading comes in after that at around 9%. So this is vehicles that are too heavy crossing the bridge. So if you add all that up, you find that about 74% of bridge failures going by this study are caused by what you'd say are outside influences, hydraulics, collisions, and, and, and overloads. And it's only then we move to deterioration, which is around 9%. Okay, so you so deterioration is the classical... Um we just didn't have money to fix the potholes quote problem. I know it's not about potholes. Yeah, but- that's pretty pretty much it. The money is not being spent on maintaining these bridges, and and it costs a lot. You have and depending on different bridges have different different problems. Uh, it takes a lot of money to inspect bridges, to check for issues, um, because bridges are you know used all the time. To close a bridge is a big deal. Actually, doing maintenance on bridges is a is a problem. Um, yep. And some of the stats are, are crazy, like the 2017 infrastructure report card from the US, they've, they've got 600,000 bridges. And in terms of structurally deficient ones, the report card says that they've got about 9% are structurally deficient. So that's 56,000 odd bridges that are classed as structurally deficient in the US. Wow. Okay, that's indeed a big number. Uh, it's a big number, yeah. Where, where would you put... Uh, uh, the, uh, there are a couple of famous examples of bridges uh, collapsing because of dynamic wind action, basically, right? Resonance. Um, yeah. Where, in which category would you put that? Oh, that's... Uh, that's the, the, the main one where that was the problem was in the Tacoma Narrow Bridge, yeah. uh, Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which everyone has seen um, apparently before 9-11. It was the most watched footage um, of, a, of a structural failure ever. But it, yeah, it collapsed. It was a, a suspension bridge in the US 1940, I think, and it collapsed due to dynamic wind actions where it, yeah, just the the dynamic nature of the winds that were there excited the bridge and, and started it um, g- galloping, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it started to 
to vibrate up and down. They called it galloping Gertie. And then one day it started to twist. So it started to get this torsional vibration. And that was ultimately what tore it apart and, and collapsed it in in the river. And the interesting thing there was that as far as I know, the designers of the bridge, so it was a designer in the sense that the bridge wasn't designed to cope with dynamic wind actions, but they weren't found negligent. Um, and the reason they weren't was that no other bridge engineer working at the time could have been expected to uh, to assume that dynamic wind actions were a problem. So that's basically an example of unknown unknowns. So we just didn't know that this would be a problem. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But there's a funny twist in that tale as well that goes all the way back to um, the Brooklyn Bridge. And, you know, that that has always been, even in the engineering community, the structural engineering community, people have always had the view of that was the first bridge to Coman Arrows that failed due to dynamic wind actions. And look at all the good things that happened after that. You know, we, we started to do wind tunnel testing. We started to really understand the nature of wind. And that's why we're able to build even taller buildings and bigger bridges now. And, and there's a you know, huge element of truth to that as well. But the fascinating thing is that it turned out about 100 years before, in the early 1800s, that uh, dynamic wind actions were knocking suspension bridges in the US. And when John Roebling uh, came along to build the Brooklyn Bridge, which was in the, the late 1800s, he knew this was going to be a huge problem. So here he was building this massive bridge in, in Brooklyn. Uh, dynamic wind actions were going to be a huge issue. What was he going to do? So what he did was he put these stiffening trusses across the bridge. So they're, they're just you know, steel members that that, uh, that make this nice truss shape and they go from one end to the other. And there's four of them on the bridge. And if you pull up a photo of the bridge, you can see them quite clearly just, mm -hmm. uh, just on the roadway level. The problem was he did a stunning job at dealing with the issue. And they, they said basically that every bridge engineer that came after him, once they put their stiffening trusses on the bridge, it was fine dynamic wind actions wasn't a problem. By the time he got to, to Comanaros um, over 40 years later, they basically said that an entire generation of bridge engineers had forgot the significance and danger of these dynamic wind actions. Not only had they forgotten that, they'd also forgotten why the stiffening trusses were on the bridge in the first place. And of course, then the drive to make these bridges more elegant and, 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 and look nicer um, meant that people said, well, why is that stiffening truss there. I don't like it. It's, it's not elegant looking. So they made it smaller and smaller. And you can actually see suspension bridge development from um, the Brooklyn Bridge. The, these are getting smaller. And then on Tacoma, um, they actually took them off. There was, there was just girders on the side of the bridge. And once they were taken off, you basically had a bridge that wasn't that stiff um, anymore. There's an interesting side to that as well, which is that Bridge engineers weren't expected to understand dynamic wind actions, but apparently this is the myth, whether it ever happened. But the myth is that they, they showed the design to some aeronautical engineers who basically said, we know exactly what would happen with that. It'll flap around in the air. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. We have the knowledge in engineering, but sometimes it gets siloed in, in different places. Yeah. Yes. So this is basically where you are um, basically telling a story where it was a human um, failure or, or somebody made a mistake it's not a technical issue right um it's it's yeah and, and this is 
this whole concept of, I suppose, um, human factors and technical factors and how they, they go together. And I suppose the way I've started to view it over the years is that you look at these structural failures um, and there's always a technical cause of that failure. Something technically went wrong and, and or a, a set of technical circumstances eventuated which resulted in the failure. And the way I tend to think about it is that you had this technical issue and then you had a whole set of human factors that allowed that technical issue to actually culminate in an actual failure. And the failures we avoid are the ones where those technical issues are caught along the way. Um, so it, in all of these big failures with these big technical issues, there were many chances. And there's usually loads of warnings that tells you that tell you this failure is actually on the way. And they're usually just ignored and not not dealt with. Hmm. So, OK, so I think this is a really interesting discussion to have. Um so let's let's for the moment go, uh, and I I'm I don't disagree, but I think it's it's <laughs> the thing is yes. I mean I hear this in software also all the time, and and generally when you when you notice that systems are for example like airplanes, right? So the the pilot made a mistake. Well, but then the yep. next guy says, well, yeah, the pilot made a mistake, but it seems like the system had been designed in a way where it didn't catch the pilot's mistake, so it's the system's fault. Well, but yes. then, of course, the, the system has been designed by people. So those people who designed the system made a mistake. Well, then you yes. say, well, but those people are embedded in an organization, right? And that organization has a process. And so they, the, the process wasn't shaped so that they were unable to detect the mistake in the system they were designing. Um, <laughs> and so I, the, for me, the, the question of whether some, I mean, sometimes there are obvious things, right? Like if a, if a yeah. train driver yeah. drives across a red signal, and assuming yeah. there weren't systems that would stop them, but but still, I mean, isn't isn't the question whether something is a human error? Is that a, isn't that a matter of scope? Like, if we look at the whole planet, it's by definition a human error because animals probably aren't involved. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm a little bit cynical, but but still, I I find it very hard to pin down pin, pin down this difference. Yeah, no, I, no I, there's a sliding scale, isn't there? Yes. You know, at one end you've got the 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 human who does something remarkably stupid and then at the other end of the system you've got a, a system that's just really badly designed in terms of the human having to use it and and almost begging for something to happen and you know reality is is probably somewhere somewhere in between i mean i think what's interesting in the structural and you get this in you know it changes in different things but if you set up a, a system whether it's software or, or or a contract to how you're going to deliver something. Um, if you set it up in a way that we know is counterintuitive to how human beings work, and what we see from all the behavioral science is that humans, you know, not only make mistakes, but they're almost predictable in the way they'll go and make these mistakes. Yep. And if you set up a system in a way that, you know, blatantly disregards that or, or goes against human nature, then... I think at that point I'm assigning a little more blame towards the system design than I am to to the human, and and we see examples of that the the Virgin Galactic um, yep. crash um, a while back was you know, been blamed on human error, but there was no safety system in place to prevent the pilot doing what the pilot actually did, and I suppose I'm I'm a 
big fan of the thing that you know humans will make mistakes that's that's inevitable um and if we can design our systems to catch those mistakes that's the best chance we have i mean one of the really interesting things about structures is you sort of say that engineers you know why do things fall down and they say oh well because it's a difficult world and it's a crazy world and it's a complicated world and you know you Buildings are complicated, and when you put them up, you've got all these complicated things attacking your building. How you know the wind and the earthquakes? How are you going to put all that together? And what you find with most of the failures, and again, varies with studies, but you know, ninety-five percent of the failures um, were people making a mistake using the standards. Mm. So 5% were the situation that the standards never anticipated. So they're the Tacoma Narrows bridges. We, we call them the unimaginables, where no one actually worked out, yeah, the, yeah this, this could, be, could be a problem. Um, but then that means that you know, 95% of the failures are actually caused by us misusing the, the actual system that we, that we have. And, and that, that really is just pure human error. And then we go and we misuse it in very... You know, designers tend to misuse it in the same way. Contractors tend to misuse it in the same yep. way when they're constructing. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting argument. I, look, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, and you know, because yeah, the we, thing is, if you if you if you say, okay, let's design the system so it can't be misused or it's harder to misuse, right? Yes. Then there's two for for this to work. There are two requirements. One is we have to, in some sense, expect the kinds of misuses people might do. Right. Yep. Um, and the the example of Spaceship One, it's almost akin to a, a driver pulling the handbrake at 200 kilometers on a German autobahn. So it's exactly. It's yeah. maybe it's yeah. maybe fair to assume that a qualified test pilot wouldn't, and so you're not adding a safety mechanism, right? And, yes. And the other thing is, um, the more of these safeguards you build or add the higher the likelihood that they will be annoying in the case when you don't make a mistake, which <laughs> A, decreases usability. I mean, it's the whole safety versus convenience argument that you have in internet, security versus convenience, right? Yeah. And also it leads to complacence, right? If if the thing asks you, are you sure, every time you'll just shut up and press yes. So yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's it's a really tough challenge. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. And I'm not I'm certainly not trying to yeah, yeah. to simplify it you know, beyond belief. Yeah, and I I, t- I take what you're saying, Marcus. I, and I'm I not really do. I'm not arguing with you, right? I'm just trying to point these things out as, as something that is really unobvious to do. In hindsight it's always clear. But you know. Yes. Well and the I think the other the other thing that flows into this as well, which we, we see from certainly the whole automation side and human factors is that and, and it's come back to your point of we have to anticipate how they'll misuse the system. But the very fact that we introduce the system makes people just behave in different ways and sometimes really counterintuitive and, and strange ways. Like drop new software in or drop new new way of building in. People do strange and unanticipated things around us. What I think is really interesting then, though, is particularly in structures, we tend to get a lot of warning signs. You know, when you could do these yeah. failure investigations and you come back and you look at stuff, you sort of say, how did people make the range of technical decisions that they made? I mean, it was it was obvious we've got a problem here. And the reality is the people at the time were just busy focusing on, on delivering the project and time pressure was high and they were relying on their expertise and the way they do things and, and just, just trying to, to get it done. So 
we we certainly have these situations where we're able to sort of tune, you know, put our hands on our ears and tune out the warning signs and say they don't they don't apply to us in this situation. Yeah. So what are the reasons for uh for some of the human mistakes where 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 it's kind of more or less obvious that it's a human mistake because for example they didn't comply to a for to to to, to established process right I mean if you if you clearly violate the standard the code. Uh, and it's not even in a rare corner that nobody knows, then that is that is obvious blameable on human causes, I would yep. say. Um, yep. So what are, what are some of the reasons? Um, is it people being, I don't know, macho? You know, I don't I don't need this standard. I'm I know what I'm doing. Is that one of them? Yeah, you you certainly you certainly get um, all of that sort of sort of flows into it. I mean, you, you, and the sort of ones that we hear in in. Well, you, not only in engineering, but in in all professions, and you know, most people will have will have heard about this. You know, anything that sort of breaks down rational thinking and breaks down communication between people causes problems. So you got your anti-authority. You know, people saying the rules don't apply to me or don't apply to this special situation I'm in. Um, you get the impulsiveness, which is you know, hurry up, let's let's just get this done. Which you, you know, when time pressure's on in construction projects, you can imagine that. You definitely get the macho, like you 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 talked about. You know, this is this is how the big boys do it. Um. You get in vulnerability, you know, where people say, and I find engineers do this a lot, structural engineers do this a hell of a lot. They say, you know, only bad and stupid or unlucky people make those those errors. Those, those that will never happen to me. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm a good engineer. I'm rational. Yeah, it's like eighty percent of all Germans say that they're above average drivers, which is an <laughs> interesting mathematical, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you see that there's a, there's a wonderful statistic where you know, something like 80% of yep. all Harvard um, business graduates believe they're better looking than their classmates. Right. You know? <laughs> yes. We're all we're all like that. You know, it won't happen to us. It's yeah. also interesting that business graduates are concerned with better looking. That's maybe yeah. the more interesting part of that. Other than, other than <laughs> and I suppose the, the what I find really interesting, Marcus, about this stuff is that. And I do a lot of workshops with engineers mm-hmm. about des- avoiding design errors and avoiding failure and that sort of stuff. It, it, we're a little bit different as engineers because we sort of seem to say that we are much more rational than the normal person. Yeah, we we seem to say that we that, you know all you know it's yes. it's other professions um, who do you know crazy irrational stuff like business and law they do that but we're engineers we're supremely rational. Yes. But but the reality is, when you look through that list, you know, of, of anti-authority, anti-authority, um, impulsiveness, matchiness, all that, they're just they're just human, and we're just as bad as engineers as as anyone else. But because we've such a strong belief in that we're supremely rational, we can um, we can sort of hide away from that and say, no, no, these these certainly don't don't apply to us. But when you look back on failures, you see this all the time and I, I sometimes find it's interesting I, I got interested in the whole human factors thing because I started out looking at the cause of failure and you're looking for the technical cause of failure mm. and and that's it and then you find it and you know everything tells you this is right it's all consistent with the evidence everything's right and then you say but why on earth would would anyone make these decisions and it's only when you dig back through that that you you find that you know people in the office hated each other and hadn't stopped you know the two people may have hated each other and they they haven't talked to each other in in months and and you know if they'd got on then they would have sort of said to each other what was worrying them and they would have been able to catch yeah. these issues and deal so this the, the human side there for engineers is uh is 
they find it very confronting. You know? Very, very confronting. Yeah. Let me try one last uh, defense in my in, 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 uh, attempt in my defense of fellow humans. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not attacking. Don't no, no, I know. I'm just making fun of you. Um, so here is something I've observed um, a lot in the, let's say, systems engineering industry here in Germany. So there is, for example, the concern for safety or quality, right? Um, you know, we have to build safe cars or high quality, whatever. And so as a consequence of that, management or some, you know, chief safety and quality people put in a process. Yeah. Now, the process usually uh, requires a lot of check marks and signatures and the equivalent of that, uh, you know, reviews and stuff. But the practicing engineer um, has to obviously um, kind of realize that process. And it turns out it's completely unfeasible in practice, starting with, yep. you know, it takes too long for what the other management managers expect in terms of, you know, time to market. Um, the, the reviews you have to make are infeasible for whatever real reason. And so what this leads to is that the engineer either has to take the blame for being late and being a stickler, or they have to go around the process and get things done anyway and just fake whatever they need to fake. And so this is this is happening. So now it's unfair for to the engineers because they can only lose. Um, because the real problem is that some people, uh, you know, come up with processes that just aren't coordinated with the real world. Um, yeah. Do you see that in structural engineering as well? Yeah, we see that. We see that, and we and I mean, where we really see it is in the whole workplace health and safety side of construction. It it, mm -hmm. it at the point when what you are you know, the administration you're trying to do to make things safer, the, the burden of complying with that administration becomes a bigger job than what it's actually trying to achieve. And it it changes your job from making things safer to simply getting through the paperwork. Yep. Um, and it takes that focus away. And we've certainly seen that in, in structural standards like if you go back 50 years and you look at you know just do a, a thickness test you know how how thick was the standard for designing bridges <laughs> mm -hmm. and you watch over the last 50 years to you get up to euro codes now they've just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown yep. and they've got more and more prescriptive they're full of more and more equations that you have to to work through and because you got more and more equations they're a lot more opaque It's not necessarily clear what each of them are, are, are doing, so you can sort of lose your your feel for the engineering a little bit. Yeah. Um, and for many people, they just you know getting through all those equations becomes, I say, the focus. And you got to be very careful here, but the focus of getting through all the, the, those equations can can almost become more important to look at, at the answer you get at the end. Absolutely. Um, I, I I don't even think we have to be careful. I've worked a bit in the medical industry recently, and the focus yep. is totally on producing the paper that the FDA or their equivalent requires. It the the quality of the actual engineering. I mean, you can build a a safe FDA compliant product that sucks in terms of usability and in terms of actual like just engineering in terms of software engineering. <laughs> and because you have this all dominating required paperwork to fulfill your regulatory authority, you you forget to focus on the rest. Yep. It's very clearly happening. Yeah. And we you know, if you go you know, a classic sort of 
tie-in with this is if you go to steel structures, the, mm-hmm. the main way overwhelmingly steel structures fall down in the real world is what we would call global stability. So it's you know, each beam and column are fine in and of themselves, but the whole structure together, the whole structure twists and wobbles and falls over. And that is exactly what you're talking about, because what we as engineers do is we take this structure and we break it up into all the little pieces. And then we apply the code to all the little pieces, the columns, the beams, and we get all that right. And we're very good at training engineers to get that right. But the problem is it's a much more intuitive, holistic job to stand back and look at global stability in the mm-hmm. structure to know whether it's right. And it's a really hard skill to teach because it is a, it's an almost an intuitive. You know, you really have to understand how structures work before you can look at a structure and say that just looks wrong to me from a global stability mm-hmm. perspective. And this is exactly what we, we talk to engineers about is the minute you lose the holistic feel of that structure, you're in trouble because you could miss you know an overarching behavior because you're way too down in the actual the actual detail. Yep. So when we talked about uh, human uh, causes of errors a moment ago, when we talked about macho and anti-authority and you know resignation, no, but doesn't matter anyway, kind of stuff. That is all yep. stuff that is like basically on the level of one person. Um, when you say human errors are a cause of many failures, do you distinguish between human as in single person as and human in terms of the organization as a whole, you know, emergent behavior kind of problems? No, we tend to bundle all of them in together. Um, okay. I certainly tend to bundle all of them in together. Okay. Because you know, the, 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 I suppose you say, you know, those personal ones that are, are specific to individual ones, they just spread out among teams, they spread out among organizations. Some of them, uh, some of those qualities like impulsiveness, matchiness, they can be almost you know, organizational culture issues as much as, True. as anything else. Yeah, I think for me, it's about sort of saying, you know, here, this is clearly a technical issue. And then everything else surrounds that is the organization, the people, the culture, all of that sort of stuff that, you know, how do, and the tools and the processes and how, how do we use all that to, to catch these errors or catch these problems before they become a big problem. Yeah. I mean, this notion of organizational forgetfulness, when you talked about basically the, the, the effect of the wind loading before, basically, or of the, of the stiffness of the bridge, basically the, the community, well, it's not one organization, but the community kind of forgot it over the years. That is, that's not big, I don't know. Is that is that that's not because a, a particular engineer who built the bridge was impulsive or forgetful, right? So it's a different quality. I see it's I see that you that what you're saying is it's like different from technical and so everything else needs to be addressed with human means, but but still it, it feels to me quite different. It, no, I think it is. Yeah, and I, no, I think you're quite right about that. And it is. And even when we get to this sort of forgetfulness, it's it's. I mean, that's almost like your historical technical forgetfulness of of the profession sort of crept in in the Tacoma case but we're we're seeing what's really interesting we're seeing now what's called corporate memory loss mm-hmm. um among organizations now where it used to be we engineers went and and worked for for i mean it depends on what country you're talking about here but certainly in australia and ireland and the uk engineers went and worked for one government department or one company for 30 years and then they retired and all that corporate knowledge stayed inside their heads what we're seeing now is engineers are jumping around structural engineers are jumping around jobs much much quicker and if that information they have in their head isn't nailed down within the organization 
then these organizations you know, seem to show that they can lose it really easy. It's, it's very, very fragile. And this is becoming now a bigger issue for companies um, with lots of assets or government departments like roads authorities with lots of as- assets. And there's the really famous failure of um, a viaduct um, carrying train lines in, in, in Ireland um, in the last 10 years, I think it was 2009, where going back to the, the scour issue, this was mm-hmm. a, a viaduct crossing um, an estuary. Uh, there was huge scour issues for 150 years. The bridge was around from 1850. They used to have to go and dump stones over the side and rocks over the side to replace the, the material that was being dug out by these scour forces. And this went on for 150 years. Then the bridge falls down and it turns out it was scour. When they went and investigated you know, how how would it be scouring? You know, with this 150-year legacy of of knowing there was a scour issue and actively managing this scour issue, it sort of turned out it was never written down anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the the engineers who were in charge of the bridge had no none of this historical knowledge because it, it seemed that the people who worked in the organisation for the 150 years this was such a known problem that no one sort of thought to write it down. Um, and it certainly wasn't available for the engineers who were trying to manage it at the at the time. So this has become a bigger problem, which is quite different to the, the Tacoma one. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's almost a problem of filing. Yep. Like many structural failures, it, it can get to the mundane quickly. Yeah, right. So yeah, that is a that would be kind of a an organizational process that really just requires you know to stick everybody you know write things down and read things. Exactly, yeah. and put them in the right place. Yeah, turned, I mean, turned out there was a, turned out there was a, a scour report had been written about twelve years before the failure, which did identify the the, the significant scour risk and and said that one pier, pier four, which was the actual one that collapsed, um, that it needed um, attention sooner rather than later. But that ended up being put in a box, I think, and just not it wasn't filed where the engineers mm-hmm. could actually. I mean, that is certainly something where potentially good software tools can help. I mean, it's just easier to cross-link, to analyze, you know, uh, buildings for their commonality with whatever machine learning thing and recommend, you know, don't you want to look at Scour in this building in the next year because other other buildings you've built, you know, Amazon recommendation kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, I I think it's – and I mean, it was interesting. They did have – they had gone and put in a, a system to record that. Um, but the problem was that the information that was in the hard copies never made it into that system. Oh. Now, even when they went up for the information in the hard copies, they, they didn't find anything on Scour. Um, it, it hadn't been sort of written down at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do we do here uh, in terms of a, if you will, community or the the, you know, whatever the professional... A society of engineers how can we how can we improve the situation to avoid mostly the human errors then and there's a few few things i mean that one of the, the the key things is you talk about failures and and you make people aware of of why they happened and what what caused them and we structural engineers have a weird relationship with that and um, we don't necessarily tend to be very good at learning the lessons from failure um <laughs> And there's a there's a number of reasons. You know, things fall down. It makes the news. We as engineers say that's that's uh, not good. I wonder what caused that technically. And then these these jobs go all legal. 
um, all the information gets shut down. Um, maybe a year later, a failure report does come out from a mm. from a, an official body like the National Transportation Safety Board in the in the US. Um, and many engineers have sort of forgotten about the failure at about that time. Um, and it's interesting when you ask engineers. We do this in the workshop. You know what caused these famous failures, which happened in the last ten years or so. Most people all over the world struggle with that, mm-hmm. which which surprised me. So there's there's this concept that they have in the U.S. called failure literacy, which is you know how aware are we as a profession of the the failures and things that have gone wrong, and the answer is we're not very good, and um, we could do a whole lot better there and as long as we don't we think failures happen to other people mm-hmm. the other thing is that you know failures happen for really mundane reasons um you know, the filing that we talked about yeah. and people just getting the calculations wrong um and you know the consequences are serious but they're trivial um and it's trying to get a handle on that that's really important the checking is really important um and there's lots of different types of checking you can do to check your work um, it, you should have a healthy fear and disrespect for computer modeling software. Um, most engineers don't. They have incredible faith in computer modeling software, but your software gets things wrong all the time. And there's many reasons why engineers putting in the wrong information, not understanding the limitations of it, not understanding the yeah. output of it. That's but, but they feel that they really understand what's happening with the structure. And that's sort of the problem, that... That arrogance that comes into it is a is a real issue. So, and, and the way the only way to check that is have simple um, mathematical checks you can do um, and do quickly. And we're losing that skill. We're certainly losing that skill out of the industry to 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 double check. You know, the view is you shouldn't be modeling something on the computer if you don't know roughly what the answer is going to be from a simple calculation. But we're Basically not seeing a kind of plausibility checking. You need that plausibility check, yeah. Mm. If you can't do it by hand, you shouldn't be doing it on the computer because if you, you, you have no way, you know, we call it the sort of the decimal point check, just make sure, the order of magnitude check, just make sure the decimal point's in the right place in your answer. Mm. Um, they're the sort of things, um, and you know, I'm a big fan of the whole James Reason Swiss cheese model yeah. that you know, ultimately, you know, for... For things to cause failures, you you have to create this design or construction error, and then you've got all these layers of of protection to stop that actually resulting in, in catastrophe, and 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 you have to use those layers as sensibly as you as you can. Yeah, I mean, um, I agree. On the other hand, um, so again, a software analogy: the the software is becoming so complex that it is um, increasingly unfair to expect the engineer to uh, you know, understand causes of failure, like your back-of-the-napkin decimal dot calculation. It's, it's not fair to rely on the engineer to find these things because the systems are just way too complex. And so one trend, admittedly a very slow one in software engineering, is that you build software in a way where it, you kind of prove that certain things can't happen and you kind of have other software systems checking each other 
And then you do, you know, the usual redundancy approach. You make sure these two systems aren't developed by the same group so you don't have common cause errors and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So in, what I'm trying to get at is, like, instead of uh, requiring person the engineer to, to check the computer by doing a, a manual calculation, another approach might be to have a colleague engineer to use a different software package. Um, yeah, that, that definitely happens. Um, what you lose, though, which I think is really important in, in, in the structural stuff is, if you're going to do a simple calculation, and most of these calculations are very simple that you mm. can do, it forces you to to make some assumptions about how you think the structure is working. It forces you to think about the structure in a macro sense yep. and, and say, okay, well, how how will I do a manual calculation here to, to check roughly this is right? That process of forcing your head through that to, to come up with a simple manual calculation, that's incredibly powerful because you're actually thinking about the structure again. Mm -hmm. You're back up out of the detail and you're in the macro. And, and I think that's the... The real advantage with that, it, it forces you to understand what's really important in the structure and what's really going to drive the design. Yeah, and at the very least, this makes sure that you that your that your model that you have the computer calculate in detail has all the relevant inputs. Because I mean, if you build a wrong model, then I mean, <laughs> you know, problem. You got a problem, yeah. And I mean, I I will always do a lot of modeling in the forensic side of things where you're trying to work out how something fell down. And there's always a way to do you know, a number of reasonably simple calculations um, and build you know, different levels of complexity into the model to actually make sure that the answer you're getting is is right. But what we see with engineers, and, and, and it's a real issue, is that you give them these complicated software packages to use, they start using them, then you know they build the model, the first attempt at the model, and the model doesn't sort of run, and then you have to tweak things and change things to make the model work, and and suddenly it moves away from you know you're only using the model to get a, a structural answer, but suddenly the job sort of morphs into you're trying to get the model working, and then the model will spit out an answer, they'll say great I'm done, they'll go into the chief engineer's office and the chief engineer will say this is rubbish, what, what have you even looked these results yeah, yeah. and the answer is probably not because the focus has changed from getting the results and making sure they're right to actually getting the model running so we certainly have that issue in our in our profession as well yeah i had that yesterday um <laughs> literally i was seriously i was trying to simulate a, a damped pendulum differential equation numerically with mathematica and i hadn't done anything with mathematica for 20 years you know, but I roughly knew. And so it, yep. it, I, I put it in, basically I copied the, the equation from Wikipedia, right? And it didn't work. Yep. Turns out I got uh, a sign wrong. Yep. But basically I, I, you know, I just simplified it, put switched signs until the, the result looked sensible. So I basically <laughs> got the model to work. <laughs> and so I, I had exactly that experience. Yeah, that's ex and it's human nature. It's it is. just like it's what we do as human beings. You know? But so good that you that you use this word human nature because that is my kind of ultimate philosophical question before we get to the the actual work of a forensic engineer. Um, at at which point are we actually colliding with human nature? I mean, people are to a degree lazy. They are to a degree angry potentially to a co-worker or they had yep. a, have a bad day because the day before you know whatever somebody told them they have cancer whatever right um yep. so 
so at what point do we have to accept a certain failure rate because it's a consequence of human nature? We just basically can't do anything about it without incurring undue cost in terms of process and overhead. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to start. Um, all the psychologists tell us and, and all the, you know, if you look at failures and business failures, medicine, failure across the humans are fallible. Yep. We will stuff up, even, even the best of us. And if you can at least try and build a system that expects that, anticipates it, then you've got some chance of, of catching it. Then we have the systems, which are the other extreme. And I will always sort of say this, I spend a lot of time around lawyers because I'm doing forensic stuff. Yep. But, you know, the way you you set up a contract, the way you decide how different parties, the designer, the contractor, the owner, the subcontractors, how they're going to talk to each other, function with each other, interact with each other. When you decide those things, you're having a major impact on how that project is going to be run. And if yep. you put stuff in that contract that is fundamentally different to human nature and the way we humans go about designing and building things, then you can expect trouble because you're you're in direct conflict to that. And we have this fascinating issue where when we set up construction contracts, one of the key things lawyers tend to do, and I'm, I'm not passionate at all because it's their job, is to move risk away from their client to someone else. Yeah. Um, and what we see is that the minute you move risk from someone who can manage that risk to a party that can't manage that risk, then two things happen. One, the party that can't manage the risk obviously doesn't manage the risk. But the party who could manage the risk, who's shifted it legally, tends not to manage the risk. So now you've got a risk mm -hmm. in the middle of this big construction project that nobody can manage. Yeah. And it's interesting, if you talk to the lawyers, they will tend to say, well, we've managed the risk. You know, we've managed the lawyer the risk, has, yes. <laughs> yeah, and you sort of say, no, you've managed the legal risk, yeah. and in the long run, you maybe have. Yeah. But you've got this big commercial risk, because if something falls down in the middle of it, and that's even before you get to a, an, an ethical risk, but you've got this commercial risk in the middle of it, uh, where if something breaks and shuts down a site for six months to, for people to deal with it, then you know, the companies all have to get through that six months and, and make it work. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is, there is certainly a kind of baseline of uh, failures that will be caused by unavoidable human nature-driven faults, failures, mistakes. But we shouldn't make it worse by setting up stupid process, stupid contracts, and stupid work environments. Correct, correct. And even even you can go even further than that. You sh you can say even if we set it up as best we can, we're still going to get. Uh, human issues yep. but our job then is to say right well what do we do to stop those human issues actually or those technical issues turning into to collapses and there's some really fascinating research uh, done out of uh, Denmark by a guy called Carol Turrell um, presume I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly but he did a wonderful PhD at the University of Delft and he looked at all this sort of stuff in the, in the context of, of failures and he basically found that the key things you need to manage if you want to stop structural failures on projects um, is not the technical stuff. They're way down the list. The, the key things are communication and collaboration. Mm. You know, if you can keep the communication lines open between different parties, building something between the designers, between the contractors, you really have a chance of catching these technical issues before they go wrong.
So, you know, for, for example, I'll sometimes see something that's designed incorrectly. Um, like, it's, it's silly. Like it's, it looks really, it's easy to look at this. That's silly. It doesn't work. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, someone still designed that. Then someone went and drew shop drawings to be able to fabricate it, who probably looked at it and said, that looks a bit silly. And then somebody actually fabricated the thing and thought, I've never done that before. And then it arrived on site to an experienced contractor who looked at it and went, that doesn't look right, <laughs> and yeah. still put it up. Yeah. So you know, there's a whole and, – and what we've done in some of these cases is we've siloed people so much. We've cut down the the the, the collaboration and communication between people so much that, that, that we've, we've shut down those channels. Um, and that's, that's a big problem. The other thing we've done, which seems to be an issue, again, when you go outside engineering, it's, it's sort of general human factor stuff is that – the more you silo skill sets, the more you say you're all structural engineers and you work in that area over there and you're aeronautical engineers and you work in that area over there. All of those people have the same expertise, but they also have the same blind spots. They have the same yeah. implicit assumptions about how they think the world works. And if they're doing a novel a project where one of their implicit assumptions, which you know, to them, they're not even thinking about because they're implicit rather than explicit. So therefore, they're not subjecting them to critical analysis. They will, they will have that blind spot and they will run into trouble. You're much better at throwing a mechanical engineer into the room with them. And that mechanical engineer is going to say at some point, why is everyone so convinced about this? We're not mm -hmm. even talking about this. And you have a chance of making something that's implicit, explicit, and at least then you can think about whether you agree with it or not. Yep. Yeah, this this cross-domain uh, knowledge transfer seems to be a good idea um, for two reasons. One, um, one subject area always thinks the other one is better. Like when I talk yes. to medical people, they always think, "Wow, the automotive industry—they are so great with safety." And you can you can have exactly the same statement from the auto guys about the medical people, just because they don't know. <laughs> so the grass is safer yeah. on the other side, right? Yep. <laughs> but the other thing is that that some some things actually do work better in in some domains. For example, the aviation, uh, the, the aerospace industry is very good about you know actually following checklists, even if they're yep. you do it for the twentieth time or the two hundredth time, and they have a very active feedback and learning from accidents culture. Yep. And the medical uh, community might not have that that much. For example, checklists aren't necessarily typical in an operating room. And so yep. I did an interview with um, a, uh, oh, what's the English word, a anesthetist, the guy who uh, puts people to sleep during an operation. Yeah, anesthetist, yeah. Yeah, and he's also a pilot. And so he's actively working on getting some of this aerospace culture into the operating room. You know, CRM so that the co-operator mm -hmm. is kind of allowed to talk against the, the chief doctor and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And that is very helpful, I think. I, I think that's critical. I think you know, a lot of the human factors stuff I've got and tried to apply to structural engineering doesn't come from structural engineering. It yes. comes from, from aviation and medicine and business. Some of the business stuff is fantastic as well because it you know, costs people real money when these things go wrong, particularly learning from failures. Um, the business world is is apparently not very good at it, and 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 the evidence is there to say, you look at here. If you can learn these lessons, then you're going to avoid the failures in the future. That's your best your best line. There's a there's a, a line of defense. There's a really good line where 
trying to remember whose quote it is now, but he says yeah, that you know, human error may be one of the biggest causes of structural failures, but human judgment is likely to be our biggest and best defense against it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good uh, segue to uh, the defense, or at least to finding out what the problem is. So let's talk about uh, the actual process of forensic engineering. Um, yep. What additional experience do you as a forensic engineer have uh, in contrast to a, quote, normal engineer, which you probably have been at some point because I suspect that's what you studied? Yeah. Um, so how is it different in skills and mindset? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost – well, the first thing is every engineer, every structural engineer thinks they can do forensics. Um, because they sort of say, well, you know, I've designed bridges for 30 years. You know, I'm the ideal person to investigate why a bridge fell down. Yeah, that's that just seems to make sense, and intuitively it makes sense to both people to 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 most people. The problem is when you dig a little bit deeper in that, um, you find that that's not really the view. The the view seems to be certainly on the forensic side, that almost the better designer you are, sort of almost the worst forensic engineer you are, and and vice versa. And it's very hard to swap between the two. Mm-hmm. And the best way to I find to 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 split it up is to go back to what designers do. So you know, you're saying to a designer, "I want you to build a 50-story building for me in the middle of this city on this ground here for this budget, um, and I want you to make it last for 50 years. So I want you to guess the wind loads. I want you to you know, largely guess the ground conditions. I want you to guess the use this building will be put to, mm-hmm. and the loads will be on it. And, and please go and do that. So for the the structural engineer, as we said, this the role of assumptions is is a critical part of the the process they have to assume how all these these things are going to work um when you get to forensics it's the opposite way around you you're looking at a specific failure and you have to use evidence to go back and work out what actually happened there so this is before we even get to you know i suppose the craft of it the yeah, the detective skills, you know, knowing how to collect evidence properly, knowing how all that works. So this is even before you get there. It's almost like at the mindset level, um, you know, designers are trained to make assumptions and move on. Um, in a way, they're trained to manage assumptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, forensic engineering is completely different. It's about investigating assumptions. It's saying which assumptions, you know, we're going to make some assumptions about how something fell down here. Uh, how do we collect evidence to back up those assumptions? So design is very much a process of synthesis. You know, you're trying to, to get a, a workable design solution for a problem that is within budget, that's economical, that fits where you're trying to put it and all those sorts of things. So very much a process of synthesis. Um, the forensic approach is much more about analysis. It's mm-hmm. much more scientific. Um, and I don't mean that in, in a better way. I just mean it in, in a probably a more precise way, that it's, it's the use of science. So you're really using the scientific method when you're using, you're doing a forensic investigation, you're, you're, you're forming a theory and you're testing it against the evidence. Um, that's not what you're doing in design because there's sort of no evidence. Um, right. You're just making assumptions that, that follow the standard and, and get, a good, uh, get a good building at the end of it. Um, a good way of thinking about it is that designers are looking at what should happen. Uh, forensics are looking at what actually happened. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, they're general general assumptions were specific relating to the actual failure. So that, that that mindset is not to be 
underestimated. If you think about it, you know, designers sleep at night because they have complete faith in the assumptions they're making. <laughs> to to get them to do a forensic job, you're saying, I want you to question and critically tear apart and challenge all those assumptions that help you sleep at night. That's what you have to do. Yep. It's a it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Likewise, it's nearly impossible when you do forensics to do design because when you're spending your whole time digging and trying to prove every single assumption, you'd be a terrible designer. Never because finished. You'd be terrible. And then you sort of layer on top of those those fundamental differences. Um, things like you know, in 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 design, you need to know how standards work and what's best practice and how all that goes together. In forensics, it's all about knowledge of how things actually fail in practice, what bits break first, um, how all of that sort of fits fits together um and and i suppose it's worthwhile we, we didn't do this but it's probably worthwhile just saying exactly what forensics is because forensics can sort of bounce around the place a little bit it, it really came out of the u.s in the in the 19 early 1980s and it's about identifying and communicating the cause of the failure that's not doing a design review. That's not mm-hmm. saying, was the bridge designed properly in the first place? Was the bridge constructed properly in the first place? It's saying what actually contributed to this structure falling down. But the fascinating thing you have is you can have a structure that doesn't comply with the code, but it won't fall down. Or you have something that falls down and it did comply to the code. Exactly, exactly. So you're after, as a forensic engineer, what happened on the day that caused the failure. And you, you see it going wrong. It's probably a good example to look at when it doesn't work out. And when it doesn't work out, you sometimes see design engineers will say the structure was non-compliant in these five ways, which clearly led to its collapse. Mm-hmm. And when you get into a legal argument, uh, certainly in, a, in the common law side, you have to do two things. You have to prove that there was a breach. Uh, and you have to prove that that breach directly led to the loss. Mm-hmm. And the bit that's not happening there when the designer says it wasn't designed properly and that must have caused the failure is you're not doing the second piece. Yep. You're not doing what we call the – I break it into the compliance piece and the causation piece. Right. And I've done jobs where I work with other design engineers, and their job will purely be to do a design review and do a construction review. And they're ideal for that job because you're saying to them, did the structure as designed and as constructed – meet best practice mm-hmm. or whatever, however the design decide best practice. My job is don't worry about best practice. Work out what caused this to fall down on the day. Mm-hmm. Very different, very different uh, approaches and very different questions. And the problems arise when you mix the two of them up. Yeah. That's what makes legal teams pull their hair out. <laughs> we'll get back to that. Um, so, the, yes. <laughs> so how does this work? Like a building falls down, I guess the first thing that happens is the police shows up, right? I guess, and the fire brigade. It, it's, I mean, it's different. It, it's sort of different everywhere and these things follow different paths and it depends. I think the easiest way to, I find the easiest way at the start is, you know, the, the what happens is something breaks or something falls down. Um, I mean, if the people injured, then, you know, Certainly the, the the police and the ambulances and all that yep. take place. But if you sort of put that bit to the side, you know, the first thing that the parties tend to do is call their lawyers. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and then what they tend to do is they, if it's an owner or a contractor, they'll sometimes bring the original designer in and say, this fell down, why? Mm-hmm. 
And that can have some really comical results because, of course, the designer is potentially in the gun for this. And um, yeah, They're in defense mode uh, from the start. They're in defense mode. And you sometimes can get really funny reports where they, 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 they will really, really try and bend things to suggest they weren't a problem. But the, the biggest issue, the single biggest issue with bringing in the person who designed the job is that sure they may be biased and if it turns into a legal case then they're definitely going to be perceived as biased but the big danger is that what they do is they decide what caused the failure and then they say to people you can clean everything up Mm -hmm. so you can clean up all the concrete you can get rid of all the bolts and then when you try and do and and this is something i bump into from time to time when you try and do your own forensic investigation and you need that evidence and we'll talk lots about evidence in a few minutes but when you need that evidence it's now gone and and that's the, the 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 really really big challenge. So what I say to to clients is, you know, the first thing you do, if no one's been hurt, is you just secure that site and you protect that evidence because that's the key to a good forensic investigation. Yeah, assuming they want a good forensic uh, investigation. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, evidence collection. Um, so you 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 dig through the rubble. You dig through the rubble. So, you, you I mean, the, the general sort of steps are, you know, as, probably as common sense as, as, as you'd imagine. You, you don't touch anything first and you get a load of photographs and a load of video evidence. Yep. And, and only when you've got all of that do you actually start touching things. And that's you know, very rare in practice. Most people get in and start moving things around very, very quickly. Uh, people souvenir hunt. People love uh, taking bolts that have failed and bringing them home and showing them the family. And suddenly you're digging around the rubble wondering where some of the bolts are gone and someone then confesses that they've got one at home. Uh, that's not at all uncommon. People throw away stuff. Um, that's very common. People tidy up. You know, these, When something happens, particularly if it's a live site, people, um, live construction site, People get very helpless because they can't do anything and the urge to clean up becomes yeah. sort of palpable that they just want to feel like they're doing something to, to clean things up. That can be a big issue. So the key thing is don't touch anything. Get your – we call it the post-collapse configuration, which is just a fancy name for loads of photographs that will allow you to prove the final situation that was there. And – and the reason why you're trying to do that is it can give you a lot of information on the failure sequence, mm-hmm. which we'll talk a little bit about. In simple terms, if you've got two beams, beam A and, a, and beam B, and you find beam B is lying on top of beam A, then that probably meant beam A fell, fell first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, the key things you're always looking for, which probably helps get your head around the, the post-collapse configuration and why it's so important, is we're look, when, a, when a structure breaks, um, you know, one piece will break first. And we call that the initiating event. Um, and then as these structures fall down, you know, even if it's partial collapse, loads of other pieces of them will break on the way down towards the ground. Yep. Um, and one of the things you're always doing when you're looking at evidence, and particularly when you're looking at evidence which has got damaged components of a structure, is you're asking yourself, do I think that's causative in other words that's the initiating event that's the bit that broke first and everything else i'm looking at is is a consequence of that breaking or is this just a a consequence piece of of damage something else broke first and this just got broke on the way down yeah so you're constantly 
you, you try not to ask yourself that in the beginning, but you're trying to keep an open mind. But that's ultimately the sort of questions you, you come to. And having knowledge of this piece fell on top of this piece and where they all fell down becomes really important. And then when you've got that, you start to slowly dismantle it and take it apart and take photographs all the time as you as you do it. Um, and I think the way I always try and do it is to say to yourself, if I ever have to explain this in a report, have I got the photo that I need yeah. to to be able to make it clear to someone what actually took place here? So in other words, I, I like to be trying that the photos do the talking rather than, than it being my opinion. Yeah. So um, a few questions here. First, um, you seem to have implied that many collapses happen, dur happen during the construction of whatever building we're talking about. Um, is that a significant uh, share? Yeah, it is. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Um, certainly, you, you, know, you get bridges collapsed during construction. You get uh, what you tend to get in structures is in, in buildings and stuff like that. Is you get collapses. I suppose not really collapses. More defects. So something breaks, and the problem is it's now holding up the construction process. Mm -hmm. So it's it's slowed down the job. And then the question is, you know, slow down the job, and that's cost a lot of money. So who's to blame for that? Who's, whose fault was this defect that resulted in this, this time loss on the job? Mm -hmm. So sometimes you do quite a lot of those investigations, and, and they obviously happen during construction because that's when they presented themselves and, and caused a delay. And so they're not necessarily catastrophic in the sense we can see them in the news. They might be local failures of parts of the construction, which has primarily economic consequences. Exactly. Right. Mm. Exactly. Um, and they can be kept incredibly quiet. Yes. <laughs> even within the industry. Yeah. Even within, you know, sometimes they're very public, um, but sometimes they're very private, and that's the way people would like to would like to keep them. Sure. Yeah, it's like the security, yeah. software security failures in the typical internet companies. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly what what companies. So while it would be better for yes. the profession as a whole to learn the lessons, it's it's extraordinary how that doesn't happen. Yeah. I'm just looking at a number of failures here from from that U.S. study that I mentioned earlier, and um, they had oh how many bridges? So they had in service 386 bridges failed in this time, uh, and only eight of them failed during construction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that there's there's small numbers there. You go to other parts of the world, and that seems to change around a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's related. Seems to be related to the speed at which structures are going up. Yeah. So, my next question I had was: um, evidence collection is clear, right? You you take pictures, so you can derive the sequence of causation. You might call. Uh, you might collect certain bolts and see how they yep. sheared, for example. Um, yep. Stuff like that. Um, but then at some point, so yeah, I should, I should, I didn't, didn't, yeah. Collecting samples is really important. So you get all your photos, and then you collect the key samples, and you measure a load of stuff. That's mm -hmm. the other thing that needs to happen in there as well. Mm -hmm. But but then then you have to, if you will, formulate a, and I use the word consciously, a, a theory or a hypothesis of how the building fell, right? Exactly. Yeah. And sure, that that hypothesis is based on evidence, but now you're back to modeling, right? In some to some degree, because you have to. I mean, you can't prove that something fell first. You you can have you can collect evidence and then reconstruct a plausible sequence, right? Yes, 
the forensic process that we use ultimately is is just the scientific method and and as i sort of said in the outset some professions have refined this even further and they they'd call you know a, a, a version of a root cause analysis and there's many others as well but ultimately they're, they're all the same in terms of overarching concept you collect evidence you form hypotheses as to what caused the failure you then test hypotheses and you end up with the cause of failure. Yep. What that really means is that you test each of your hypotheses against the evidence you've collected. You will either find them to be inconsistent with the evidence or very consistent with the evidence. And if you're lucky, you'll have ruled out all of them bar one as being inconsistent with yep. the evidence and you'll rule one of them as being most consistent with the evidence. Yep. And that's essentially your cause of failure. Now, it doesn't mean you've only got one cause of failure. You could have two or three things that were necessary yep. to cause the failure. But what you do have is you have one through series of events yes. that took place. And that's that's what you're, that's what you're chasing. Um, and you're quite right. I mean, the way a lot of these investigations work is – you collect your evidence, you form your theory. So let's say one of your theories is the the wind speed on the day of the failure was very high and maybe the wind knocked this piece of the building. So what you'll do is you'll, in that case, one of the pieces of evidence you'll get is you'll go to the, the local Bureau of Meteorology or wherever the information is stored and you'll get the the wind speed, the actual measured wind yep. speed for as close to the site where you're interested in as you can get your hands on. So now you know, you know, you have a good estimate of the wind speed, shall we say. And then you're quite right. You've got to go and build a model of the structure. And then you've got to apply the wind speed to the model. And the model's going to you know, obey the laws of physics and all that sort of stuff. And then you say to yourself, is the model now telling me that I've got a failure? And if the answer is yes... You then say, and is it consistent yeah. with the manner of failure that we see in the evidence? In other words, did the, this piece break first and then did we get all this other damage? And if the answer is no, it's inconsistent with the, the evidence you've got of the failure because you've there and you've took all your photographs and you've done all that, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your failure theory. And you have to dig in and try and understand what that is. It's basically an iterative process, right? Where you, you collect some evidence, yep. you form a theory, then there are holes in the theory. You try to find more evidence to substantiate that theory to make it bulletproof. If you if that works, well, then you're making progress. If you can't find that evidence, you might discard that theory and maybe try another one. Exactly. And there's a few, few I suppose, key parts to all that. You have to keep it really, really careful. You, you, you have to you have to look at a range of hypotheses. So you have to keep a really open mind. Mm -hmm. You have to look very, very broadly. One of the big issues you see in forensic investigations is the investigator gets tunnel vision on something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So so it gets attached to a hypothesis and chases it. And, and the, the general rule I sort of have is that, you know, one day you could be in, in the witness box and um, you better have considered all the other theories that will be thrown at you by the lawyer because, uh, and, and you better have thought about them and you better have worked through them and proved them to be um, inconsistent with the evidence. It, it's almost as valuable to prove so a theory is, is inconsistent yes. as it is to prove that a, value, that the, a theory is consistent. Yeah. Um, that's a really important thing. That it's a, it's really powerful when you when you say that no, it was not the wind load, yeah, and that was not the cause here because that doesn't 
overload the structure and certainly doesn't cause a failure. So they're very powerful to be able to to say those sorts of things and rule out things. How often can you come up with, um, let's say, sets of um, theories where one is really overwhelmingly more probable because usually probably it's not a yes no thing right it's usually a probability thing and if you have three theories of failure each with a probability of one third well then you have a problem um, you have to collect more evidence but but how often can you get to a whatever 98 to 2 ratio how, how clear cut are these things in practice <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's interesting because if, if you go to yeah, I mean, most failures end up in in the legal system because you know someone's yes. suffered a loss, um, and that means that all these investigations tend to, unless it's a government body doing it, tend to get you pushed through the legal system as well. Uh, certainly, the common law legal system is interested on the balance of probabilities. Is yep. what they call it. So, is is one cause of failure more probable than the other? So they're not like the criminal situation where it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. So. You, you don't have to have a beyond a reasonable doubt belief in your theory. Um, you have to just know that it's more probable than or more likely than than any of the rest of them. Um, what I find is it tends to be a lot more, I suppose, even black and white than you're saying. You end up usually wish being able to rule out. Let's say let's say you're you're, you're lucky. You, you do tend to be very very comfortably be able to rule out a whole pile of hypotheses and you do tend to be very comfortable at ruling in the most likely one mm-hmm. um, and that is if you've got good evidence so if, if you've got good evidence and you've done you've done the forensics well and you've been very careful and you've used lots of common sense as well as engineering in there um it's 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 very common to be able to say no i know it's not those and i know it's this one the, the other problem is bigger where you end up with two competing theories or three competing theories and the usually the reason why you end up with two or three competing theories it doesn't happen that often but when when you do it's usually because the critical piece of evidence you need to separate sure. them was lost yeah oh i mean what you're saying it was there at some point but then it was uh, quote lost exactly mm-hmm. exactly and you know that could be simple as if you had the bolts that were that failed and you had given them to a metallurgist who put them under a microscope they could have said there's no evidence of fatigue cracks here or this is a pure tensile failure or a pure shear failure or whatever it is and because you don't have those bolts you may not be able to 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 get to the end hmm. And at that point, you're simply saying, you know, it could be any, it could be either of these theories, and there, there's insufficient evidence one way or the other to 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 point in one direction or another. Yep. It's most common, I find, to get an answer, but sometimes, probably in one or two jobs I've done, I've got to that where you just say, like, there's just insufficient evidence to both, both are likely, and there's insufficient evidence to uh, rule one in or one out. Mm-hmm. Are you then often? You mentioned, you said before, like. You might be, you know, in a litigation, and you, you, you better have the argument. So, how often are you actually um, in court, acting as an expert witness or as the guy who basically tells everybody what the reason was, what the cause was? Is that part of your job? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, the job is 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 that. So, most of the time, I mean, these these cases almost never uh, go to court. They get oh. close. Um, 
And it's usually, I think, because insurers are involved and insurers know it costs a whole lot of money to go to court and it's just much better to, to fight and then settle um, before you get to that point. Um, but, yeah, I've certainly written a lot of reports and then you get experts on the other side who write a lot of reports and say you're completely wrong and then you have to write ex- reports back saying, no, actually, I'm right and you're wrong for these reasons. So you get all that argy-bargy over and, and back and, and that nearly always comes down to the assumptions. That nearly always, it, it's, I find it's very rare in these situations for people to make mistakes in their in their analysis and all that. It's, it's a fundamental assumption they've made um, which may not be specific to this site and that's you again that comes back to being won and lost on evidence that you know i will say a photo always beats a computer model every single time if you've got a computer model that says a certain joint breaks and your theory depends on that and i've got a photo that shows that joint isn't broken <laughs> then yes people tend to believe the, the the photo um and and that's why you know i i'm obsessed with collecting evidence you know that's that's really where you get strong forensic results mm-hmm. um, is when you get good evidence and, and um, there's a time and place for computer modeling and I do a lot of that, um, but it's further than the line. Certainly the, the, first, the first period of time is, is on site digging mm-hmm. for stuff. Literally, <laughs> yes, literally, it can be digging for stuff, but it's, and and you have to be really, you know, you sometimes really have to persevere, and and particularly if clients are just trying to get on with things, yeah. and and trying to say, look, it, it, if we don't get this piece of evidence, you know, and uh, two expert witnesses are going to spend a lot of time and money speculating in the future on what this could have been, but if we get one photo, then we know what it is. You but know? on on whose authority are you there typically? Because I mean, if you say you have to persevere and convince people to let you do the evidence collection, not clean up, I mean, who are you to tell them, right? I mean, who 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 gives you the authority to say to them, "Go away, I have to collect evidence." How does that work? Yeah, it is, it, again, it depends. So sure. if you're um, if you're hired by a contractor who says so a live construction site, the contractors, um, you know, something's gone wrong and the contractor hires you to work out what went wrong. Um, you know, in that sort of situation, uh, you tend to be able to say, well, OK, if you want me to find out what went wrong, I need to do mm-hmm. X, Y and Z and be here, here and here. And you you, you got to try your best to let me do that, you know, within within reason. Um Similarly, if you're in, you know, if it's a if it's a completed structure and the the owner's now in charge of of the the structure, then you you tend to get a lot of freedom to do what what you need to do. Um, it's much more complicated if you're working for you know a designer in a live construction site, and those designers are not getting on the site now. That's that's a, a very different situation. So sometimes you really are able to collect the evidence you want, and sometimes it's a, it's a lot more difficult, and you just sort of have to sort of just roll with the punches and do the best you can each time. Mm-hmm. How much of your job is uh, digging for evidence versus uh, of, you know computer modeling and then writing reports? Uh, it's hmm, good question. It it depends on the jobs. Some jobs are incredibly heavy on the evidence collection and very light on the analysis side of things. Um, and then some of them are the other way, the other way around. Um, I did one job, but I think it was on site just for one day because they had it all fixed up. Um, yeah. It was all repaired and people were moving on. Um, but there was six months of computer modeling trying to understand what had happened after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually, you know, 
people you want to get in collect the evidence uh people want you to do that as quickly as you can because they want to move on so that can be in the days or weeks category um but the modeling and that can certainly be in the months category and the writing can certainly be in the months category okay um because the oh. the, the interesting thing about the writing is you're writing for a non technical audience you're writing for the lay person yes. um and, and that's a really important part of it so whereas if it was just a room of engineers reading it, you you may get away with one paragraph, but that could be seven pages in a report um, because the people you're dealing with don't understand bending moments and shear forces and those sorts of things, and nor should they have to. So it's your job to, to explain it. It's all interesting discussion how you uh, structure such a document that it is, if you will, browsable by experts, but still understandable for the non-experts. Like, how do you? Are you, uh, you know, the, the appendices are your friends. Yeah. Um, is sort of rule number one, uh, and then I have a sort of a rule which seems to work quite well, which is don't explain something to someone and uh, explain what that necessarily means at the same time. Um, and what I mean by that is that I will start usually with a sort of there'll be an introduction chapter and then there'll be a, a, an introduction to the structure, what usually is sort of part two or, or, or the second chapter. And it will very much say, here is what the structure looks like, um, loads of photos, and here is what all the bits of the structure are called. So when mm -hmm. we're talking about... Um, a parapet or an abutment or a pier, this is what we're talking about. And those names won't change through the report. They're mm -hmm. definitions now. And, and, and these structures are usually designed taking into account wind load and earthquake load. And, and you step through all of that. So that, And then by the time you get to the next chapter, you sort of say, well, you know, in, in th this is how all this comes together. And this is the significance of all these bits Um and, and you step through the evidence in those in those chapters, and you know you can say there was there was this cracking on this pier, but now people already know what that pier is, and they know where that pier is. Yeah. So, always very careful to sort of separate out and say that this is this is showing you all the bits, and and we'll bear with me, we'll get to what all these bits mean in, in the pages to to follow up. Certainly, don't overload it with with too much stuff going on. That's that's not the right approach. Yeah. Well, two comments here, and I think it's an interesting topic to some degree. Which is one, um, you're not writing a fiction novel, so you don't have to have this kind of uh, arc of suspense. So you don't. So you know, you 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 must expect that people are actually going to spend three hours to read this, right? Otherwise. That's yeah, and, um, well, you're, you you certainly approach from the view that someone else is going to be paid to to find fault with it. Yeah, and someone is is going to try and find the issues with it. It's going to be tested very very rigorously. Yeah, um, particularly if it goes all the way. So you certainly write it with that in, in that in mind that you it gets very meticulous. You you I suppose you say there is a struggle for clarity. You're trying mm -hmm. to be as clear as you can all the time to to make sure that when you say something that it's clear what you mean yeah. and not subject to you know, too many arguments about it. What tools do you use to do the writing? I mean, I could imagine that hyperlinks are very useful to be able to point to that thing you're talking about. Um, how do you keep track of the structure of the document in your own mind while writing it? Any any special tools there? No, I mean, I just use, use Word. 
Um, I tend to start at the end, though, which I, I, I find most helpful. I tend to write the, the, the cause of, you know, when I've done all the analysis, I tend to, to write a first draft of the cause of failure piece first. So I'll have mm-hmm. a, a little heading with cause of failure and it'll say this is the most likely cause of failure and then this is the and, and for the following reasons. And then I'll step through the all, all the unlikely causes of failure as well and the reasons for them. And, and when you've sort of got that sorted, it's a lot easier to say, okay, well, for someone to understand this, they will need to know all, you know, they'll need to, yeah. if one of the reasons is that we did an experiment and we tested some bolts and they failed at this stress and that became, or failed at this load and that became a critical piece of evidence. Yeah. That'll have appeared in the little bullet points in, you know, what the cause of failure was. And you say, right, well, that needs to go into the chapter before so that I've introduced this this concept of these, these tests and what the results were. And then that'll be quite brief. But if you go to the appendices, it's probably got the actual results of the tests. Yeah. And it's got photographs of how we did the tests so that the other engineers can go to that bit and find what they are looking for. Um, but for the reader, they'll see it very clearly in the in the text. So I find that that's a lot easier to sort of start at the end and, and say, what does a reader need to know in order to be able to understand, understand this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just step back. Yeah. I, I was asking because as part of my job, I, I also have to write a lot and explain complex technical things. And um, I sometimes wonder, you know, and I also do a lot of formal modeling, which I call programming. And I, yep. I sometimes wonder if um, there couldn't be the equivalent of a compiler for these documents that tells you when you're inconsistent <laughs> to some degree. I mean, I know it's because it's, you know, it's semantic and prose. It, there's a limit to what you can do. But on the other hand, it's kind of strange that people like you use a general purpose tool whose only semantic understanding is here's a character on the screen and it is bold. Yep. It's yep. weird. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know there are other people who do this sort of work will, will use more hyperlinks and they'll they'll use programs where they can ontologies um, all the graphs uh connect it up so if they want to go and change a parameter it generates a graph it'll go run right through the whole right. system and change the graph from the report but yeah i've never sort of gone that far down the line yet interesting most mm. people don't and i think that in itself is interesting um like mm. for example in most software papers of written by programmers are written in latex um yep but uh you you can tweak latex to basically support what's called literate programming where you basically mix the program and the algorithms you're writing about with the actual writing and you have this like living document in, in the same way as you suggest and and mm-hmm. you would think that programmers are the kinds of people who might want to do this but most don't so no. uh, strange and it's interesting i mean i do a lot of the, the some of the jobs you do you get a lot of data yeah um and I tend to use Python for a lot of that sort of stuff. Sure. And certainly one of the guys I know is he, he runs that all the way through to LaTeX so yep. that he can have the complete sequence. But I've only sort of got as far as using Python and spit, spitting out the tables and spitting out the graphs and right. then just bringing them into Word. Yeah. So when you say you, do you do this alone or do you have a team who helps you whatever collect evidence and do some of the writing? No, I tend to, to do most of it alone. Okay. Um, I will, you'll bring in people if if you need extra help because of time constraints. You'll certainly bring in people if you need expertise that's outside your expertise. So, for example, sometimes you you, you get jobs where they want to know 
you know, what caused the failure, I'll do that piece. And, you know, did it comply with the relative standards? And you bring in the other engineer who will do that. And sometimes we would write joint reports. Mm-hmm. At other occasions, you just write totally separate reports. It tends to depend on the job and the client and what people are, are after. Mm-hmm. There's certainly an expectation in, in the sort of the expert witness world that they want whoever is going to be the expert witness to, they, they tend to like that person to have done a lot of the analysis mm-hmm. themselves so that, that if they get challenged on aspects of the modeling work or anything like that, that they can say, well, this is why I did it and this is the reasons why. Mm-hmm. When you are in a court or a litigation or an arbitration, um, is everybody expert enough to have a meaningful discussion about technical matters and models? Uh, I mean, you, you said before that you're writing for a lay audience, but on the other hand, if you want, if they if they challenge you on the modeling, that they have, then they have to be to some degree technically versed. Yeah, I mean, the the barristers will do their homework, mm. um, and, and they will work out um, what they think is right and what they think is wrong, um, and they will they will challenge very strongly in those areas. Yeah, mm. it's, it's quite incredible to watch. Mm. Um, the, yeah, the barristers are something to watch. They really uh, know how to dismantle arguments. Right, yeah. <laughs> Even very technical arguments uh, that are, are you know, about structural engineering. They're really incredible. And do they do that based on knowledge about the engineering or do they just find you contradicting your own words? Uh, a bit of both, bit of both uh, yeah. contradictions. Uh, they, they work on that. They work on on um, logic jumps as well. Yeah. You know, so if, if if there seems to be a little gap in the logic, well, why is that? They work on factual stuff. You know, this assumption, all of this analysis is based on this assumption, and that assumption is inconsistent with the evidence yeah. we have. You see that sort of stuff as well. So it 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 depends. Um, you know, I've never gone to court myself it's everything i've ever done has settled um before okay. we've got there some of them quite close um so i haven't seen any of them in action with me but certainly you hear the stories of everyone else who's uh, <laughs> gone through it it's meant to be quite an unpleasant experience mm-hmm. so kind of to 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 wrap up i was going to ask you whether you are busy like how many of these things actually fall and 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 kind of collapse but on the other hand when you said that it takes days to weeks to to collect evidence and then maybe months to model and and write then you don't need that many failures per year to fill to fill up a year right <laughs> no no i mean i don't i don't do probably two or three jobs a year yeah um some years only one uh, yep. depending on how big it is so you have to get quite um careful about how much work you take on mm-hmm. um and you see sometimes people who do expert witness stuff can get caught with that a little bit they end up doing you know, they get overstretched um which is a big issue uh so you, you you tend to um and i'm a bit unique in the sense that i my area of expertise is an area of expertise that naturally puts you in the legal arena that's you know m- Pretty much every job you do is 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 going to go legal, and um, because there has been a failure and there has been a loss, and and those things tend to to go legal. So, it depends. I mean, the short jobs, some of them can can be very quick. They can be a matter of weeks. But I mean, a lot of the stuff at the moment is sort of three to six months mm-hmm. by the time you get in and really understand what's what's taking place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I should say the sort of stuff I get involved in is a bit unique as well. It. it you know, if you have to do a design review in a structure, it probably won't take that long, particularly if you put a team on it. But that's that's not what I do. You know, ultimately, I'm interested in 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 the the failures where you have a range of design issues and you have a range of construction issues and you may even have a range of operator issues. And your job is to work out 
which of those issues, if any or if them all, actually contributed to the to the failure we have here? Yeah, they're unique jobs. They the there's there's many failures that are a lot simpler than that. Yeah. I'm sure you can't talk about your current jobs for, for obvious reasons or your current job um, as yep. in case. Um, you've been talking about your job for two hours now. Um, yep. <laughs> so uh, can you maybe, what was especially interesting or curious one that you were part of in the past that you can talk about? Any interesting anecdote for our listeners? Um, yeah, there's none I can talk about, but <laughs> you certainly... I think the ones that are that really stick with you are the ones that 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 were really took a long time to to get to the bottom of, and there's a few reasons why they can sometimes take a long time to get to the bottom of. Um, I would probably say the implicit assumption is the biggest one. You mm -hmm. that there was one where, yeah, we're gonna without getting into details. Uh, there was one where there was a big issue with with a structure. It hadn't fallen down but there was a big issue with it and we we're trying to understand what was the, the cause of the issue and I came up with a theory and it seemed really really solid that this is the theory and set out to try and do the analysis to prove the theory and no matter what way you did the analysis you could not prove the theory mm. and this went on for weeks absolutely weeks and um, meet, had a meeting coming up with the client and I remember very vividly, it was a Sunday night and the meeting was on the Tuesday. And I was just sitting in the office on a Sunday night because that's how bad things were going. And you sort of go, this is a disaster. You know, I, I have no idea what's going on here. And then you sort of realize, no, hang on, you know something really, really valuable. You know, after a fortnight of trying to prove this theory, you haven't been able to prove it. Mm -hmm. Which means there's something incredibly wrong with the theory. And... But I've done this in a few jobs. You stand up at the whiteboard and you put a line down the middle of the whiteboard and you write evidence on, on one side and you write hypothesis on the other um, or assumption on the other. And then you write down everything you know and you put it in the evidence column or you put it in the assumption column. And what I've found, I've done this from probably three or four jobs now, on the, but it was very vivid this particular night. You found one piece of evidence, you, know, you, uh, you step through all the pieces of evidence you've got and you know you can prove them. So you tick in all the ones off that you know you can prove. And then we get to one piece of evidence <laughs> that I couldn't prove. Mm -hmm. And someone had said it. And the, the sheer magic of rubbing that out and moving that to the assumption column mm -hmm. was, was incredibly powerful. And of course, once you, once I dug, you found out that that really wasn't the case. And that piece of evidence wasn't a piece of evidence at all. It was yeah. an assumption. Yeah. And the assumption was wrong. Um, and then suddenly you could go looking for the evidence to, to fill the gap. Um, and once we did that, the whole thing clicked. And by, by Tuesday, it had just it made, just made complete sense. And it was all because someone had made a comment in the beginning that this is really important. And it was, it was you know, when you were sort of stepping through the laborious progress, process of trying to, to prove that, that it jumped down and went, no, you've, you've, you've just got this wrong. There's mm -hmm. something wrong in there. Mm -hmm. But the sheer value was knowing that you've proved you were wrong. That was where the power was. They yeah. could say, right, now you know See what see what that was. That was very vivid. That was a very um, magic moment when it all came together. <laughs> and there is, there's no doubt about it. There is, there's something really special of when you you do all this analysis and you do all this maths, and you know it, it just explains what has taken place yeah. and explains it in a way that's entirely consistent with all the evidence you have. That's a that's always a 
feeling you never get tired of it. Yeah, I guess one aspect of your job that is probably very nice is that you have a defined end of your task. You know, yes. you, now I have the theory. I'm done. I figured it out. I'm done, yeah. That's nice. Which yeah. uh, leads to incredible scoping problems when you start <laughs> writing these jobs. Yes. It's, it's, it's sort of like uh, sometimes my wife says to me, how long will this take? And I say, well, I don't know if I would figure by next month great if i haven't it'll take longer and uh, yeah you have to approach it like that as long as your clients pay you by the hour i think that should be fine yes and you are very careful to give these are the stages we will go through and yeah. and you know these are the potential answers we could get from these stages and then we'll move to the next stage yeah. and we'll we'll yeah. go from there so yeah that's the the sort of way you have to approach it yeah Talk a few minutes about your podcast so listeners know what to expect and where to find it. Yeah, so I started uh, um, started writing for probably, probably must be four or five years ago, writing a lot about failures and what causes failures and, and not only in structures but in, in other uh, professions as well. And so about two years ago, I decided to start a, a podcast to look at that as, as well because I do a lot of presenting as well yep. and podcasts seem to a good way of, of doing it. So I started off, uh, just it's called the Brady Haywood Podcast. It's on iTunes and all the usual places. And it's very much about looking at, I suppose, the examples of all the stuff we've talked about today. So taking all these famous failures, both in, in, in structural, but in aviation as well, and trying to explain technically why they came about and also from a human factors point of view why, why they came about. So they're a funny mix. You sometimes get people who sort of say to you, you know, I'm not into technical stuff at all, but I really enjoyed them because there's a good human factors side to it. And, and, and I try and pick the stories that are good stories that have interesting backgrounds to them. And that's sort of been a, a, a driver in it. So, yeah, we had 20 episodes um, and then we've just done a, a five episode series on Apollo 13 as well. So. <laughs> that's how I came across uh, David Woods yeah. uh, linked uh, to that. <laughs> yeah yeah so it was a it was a bit of a mammoth task to get it out but it was one of the most you know, famous engineering failures out yes. there so it seemed like the the right thing to to tackle yeah and and one thing you do in these um in these episodes is you actually try to tell a story and that that is interesting so it's yeah. not just you narrate facts but you actually try to have your <laughs> arc of suspense to some degree and when i when i first saw it i was i was skeptical because um you 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 do this as a single person there's no dialogue and in many yep. cases podcasts where one guy rumbles on this is just crap but <laughs> it's terrible yeah. yes but but actually the only the only exception is you might know that is uh, the space rocket history podcast um mike ennis he also yep. manages to to make it interesting or like lively despite uh being only one person but you manage that too because it's almost like a little audio book because you tell these stories oh, and that's that's a, a really nice combination so recommended despite only being one person <laughs> It's, well, it's interesting because the um, when you go and you look at all this human factor stuff and all the psychologists talk about, it, they say that if you give, you know, the only way you really learn from failure is if you remember the stories. Yeah. So if you try and give people lists of failures and stuff like that, lists of common ways structures fail, they'll forget it literally within five minutes because yep. there's no sort of emotional resonance. They don't hang on to it. So yeah, certainly I try and keep the storytelling piece in it so that people at least sort of engage with it, and you may. 
you may uh, let the technical bit drift to the back of your head, but hopefully the story bit will stay at the front and it'll it'll make you go, hang on, I must go back and read about that again just yep. to see what that was, but it's starting to sound familiar. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit, so there is the, the Airline Pilot Guy podcast uh, who yep. talk about airline stuff, and then there are these Plane Tales by Nick Anderson. It's like a mini, mini story like inside the podcast where he talks for 10-15 minutes about about a story from aviation he actually scripts those he writes these down and um yours reminded me a little bit of that it's like it's an emphasis on story and narration and not just about the hard facts and that makes it work i think so Anyway. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's I certainly would, enjoyable. A lot of hard work, but yeah, it's, uh, yes. it's enjoyable. Dude. I was going to say, it must be quite a bit of work to, to script these before you record. It takes a long time. I think the Apollo 13 script took 18 months, roughly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and not working full-time on it, but you're doing a real job and working around. But, I mean, it, the scripts for it came out around 45,000 words overall for the five wow, episodes. Wow, that's so, a lot of work. Yeah, it took a long time. I mean, if I had known if it was going to take that long, I wouldn't have done it. Yes, well... <laughs> <laughs> One of those things you sort of say, oh, yeah, this is a great idea to do Apollo 13. Yeah. And then suddenly it grew into this mammoth task. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I do a lot of writing anyway. So that sort of helps to, yeah. I think, it becomes a natural thing to just sit down and write and, yes. and stick through it. Right. Okay, cool. So I have, I have no more questions. Uh, unless you have uh, final words, uh, I think we're done. No, not at all. No, it was great to talk to you, Marcus. As you know, I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time, so it was it was great to be a guest on it. Yeah, it's actually funny when these like podcast universes collide. Thank you very much for being a guest. And especially how weird this was because it was I think uh, yeah I think I can, your podcast uh, I found because David Woods was on it. I think yeah, originally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when he was talking about how Apollo flew to the moon. And then he ended up listening to my podcast, and then you picked it up yes. from that yes. because of the Apollo. <laughs> it's a strange word. So it's all David's fault. I'll tell him. Yes, all David's fault. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's reasonable. Cool. All right, that's great, Mark. Good Thank night. Thank you very much. Ciao. All right. Good night. Bye now. All right, that's it. Thanks very much, John, for being on the show. I, I love the discussion also because it got a little bit meta at some point, you know, the conceptual issues about how far uh, some things are technical versus are organizational and, and when we kind of collide with human nature. I think this is a very interesting discussion to have and so it was a lot of fun for me. Um, apart from that, I hope you guys all enjoyed it. Um, you might have noticed that I have recently accelerated the publication of episodes a little bit. That is because uh, some have taken quite a long time, not this one, um, for for getting cleared. And um, so I want to make sure we don't take too long until we publish. Um, oh, and you might also have heard about this uh, not so uh, great uh, case where I decided not to publish the episode on the coal-fired power plant I visited last fall because uh, they wanted so many things cut out, like 20 minutes in 20 places in total, um, that I said, well, that, that's not that's not going to work. I'm not going to do that. I mean, as you may or may not know, I give my guests the opportunity to listen to the episode before I publish. And then if something is really kind of shouldn't be said publicly, you know, you because you say something stupid in, in the heat of the recording, um, then we can cut this out. And I've done that in, in several cases, but it was always only very minor and very local things. And that's fine, right? I mean, um, there's no problem with that. But 
But if if you get like over three different like email exchanges, 20, 25 places to cut, uh, sometimes, you know, I ask my guests to tell me precisely which part, like as in from this hour, minute, second until this other uh, time marker um you know the, the the things i got from the coal fire power plant people was like in the middle of middle of sentences so i i if i cut that it's just gonna it's gonna suck right it's not gonna be a great listening experience and um yeah so i decided not to publish this is the first time this happened actually it's the second time i i did something on the solar impulse where i talked to the test pilot and um we were told by the pr people of solar impulse that only um andre boschbelk and Picard are allowed to talk about flying this thing publicly and so we couldn't publish this but that was a bit of our own fault because we didn't coordinate with them and ask them in advance right but in the coal-fired power plant it was different and um, anyway this was quite frustrating for me I spent a whole day and a couple of euros right to stay in a hotel for a night and stuff so I hope this is not going to happen too often because it's really not uh, helping with the motivation for this thing here anyway um, Sean wanted nothing changed. Actually, he didn't even listen <laughs> again to the recording. So that's great. That's how it should be. All right, that's uh, enough for today. Uh, I'm going to go for a walk and I uh, hope you enjoyed this one. I'll talk to you in anywhere between a week and two weeks. Ciao. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. Oh my God, so.